Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of the Fairly Lame Podcast. My name is Dom and this is your home of positive, feel-good environmental news from all around the world. And before we get into this episode, have a quick little announcement, so bear with me. If you're new around here, we've got a few new listeners. The old numbers over on YouTube are slowly going up, so forever grateful. Please say day in the comments down below. Um, but if you've been around here for a while now, you may have realized earlier on there was a fair bit of overlap between the podcast and the stuff I'd put up on Instagram and TikTok. But now we're changing it to, you know, try to create a bit more value and just stop repeating myself and going over the same stories, right? So the stories that we cover in today's podcast and future podcasts will only be in the podcast. I'll post some clips and whatnot over to Instagram and TikTok for a bit of promo, but the only, like the in-depth stuff will only be on the podcast. And then... Uh, conversely, so more incentive to follow over on Instagram and TikTok, we will only be going over my daily news show topics on there. They won't be included in the podcast. So trying to separate it a bit more so, you know, there's more reason to, you know, just dive into the fairly lame ecosystem. And so the topics for today's video, the first one is that 95 square kilometers of gorilla-rich unlogged forests have been added to a national park in the Republic of Congo. Then we're having a look at a couple of teenagers' environmental project to collect shoes for the homeless and the importance of this in a more climate affected world. The cyclone situation over in New Zealand, uh, having a look at how microgrids can increase safety during natural disasters as well as the obvious environmental benefits. The conservation of the endangered copperbelly water snake in Ohio. How and why wildlife crossing structure design must consider climate change. And finally, turning airports into solar farms and the recent momentum that's been seen over in America. So as always, keep commenting your flags down below so I can include them in the uh, next podcast so I can include news from your area as well as, you know, just any feel-good stories you come across. So the first story. So the Republic of Congo expands national park to include gorilla-rich unlogged forests. So an unlogged forest rich in critically endangered western lowland gorillas is now part of the, this is, uh, apologies in advance for my Republic of Congo listeners, but the Nua Bali Ndoki National Park. Uh, inclusion of the 95 square kilometer forest comes after more than 25 years of scientific research in the area and an extensive community consultation to design a management plan that benefits both the local communities and wildlife. And for a bit of background information about the critically endangered Western lowland gorillas, so it's a bit confusing because on some websites, uh, like this one, the World Wildlife Foundation or Fund, they say the Western gorilla is the most numerous and widespread of all gorilla species, but then it's listed as critically endangered. And I think this is due to just the massive range that it has. And so populations can be found in Cameroon, the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Equatorial Guinea, as well as in large areas in Gabon and the Republic of Congo. And it seems like they're pretty poorly understood as uh, as you can see here on the World Wildlife Fund page. And a quick shout out, if you're listening audio only on YouTube, we have a screen recording set up if you prefer to uh, watch it that way. And so, yeah, they say the exact number of Western lowland gorillas is not known because they inhabit some of the most dense and remote rainforests in Africa. Significant populations still exist, including in isolated swamps and the remote swampy forests of the Republic of Congo. And just quickly, they could have one of the all-time great scientific names. It is literally just Gorilla, Gorilla, Gorilla. And so it was a bit confusing to me when I first came across this thinking like, well, if they have such large numbers, you know, most numerous, 
how can they be critically endangered? But then uh, I believe it's here. So this is on National Geographic. So uh, what classifies a critically endangered species? So there's a few different categories, I think five. Yeah, five categories. And one of them is the population reduction rate, which is what I assume is happening here. And so a species is classified as critically endangered when its population has declined at least 90% and the cause of decline is known. A species is also classified as endangered when the population has declined at least 80% and the cause of decline is not known. That's interesting. So the inclusion of this area into the park not only provides protection for this area of high integrity forests and its unique biodiversity, but also secures the customary rights of the communities to access and benefit from resources they depend on, such as honey or caterpillars, since we are now assured that this forest will remain intact in perpetuity. And so communities were directly involved in discussing the extension of the park and identifying areas of cultural and economic importance within the area. And so this resulted in the inclusion of provisions for a community sustainable use zone for the continued harvest of non-timber products and traditional fishing within the area. And then one of the chiefs from a local village went on to say, we are not prohibited from activities such as harvesting leaves, mushroom or honey or fishing all of which are allowed in the zoning. What we are prohibited from doing is using firearms. And we agree on this because we know that in the area, there are gorillas habituated to human presence. And if we use guns, we risk disturbing them. And so the extension of the national park includes an area of global importance for the study of the ecology and behavior of the Western lowland gorillas, as it's home to Mondika, one of the longest lasting research sites of the species. Since 1995, three groups of gorillas have been habituated to human presence around Mondika, allowing direct observations of the gorillas in their natural environment. This led to continuous data collection over 25 years and significant advances in our knowledge of this species, the least well-known of the great apes. And so the Republic of Congo, 60% of which is covered by forests, has a dozen protected areas representing 13.36% of its territory. This extension comes just months after the announcement of creating Congo's first marine protected areas, now covering 12.01% of Congo's exclusive economic zone. And for those of you who may be out of the loop, a couple months ago, there was an announcement about the 30 by 30, which I'm pretty sure the vast, 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 if not every country, except for a couple, I'm sure there are a couple that didn't, but the vast majority of countries signed up to 30 by 30 commitment or goal, which is to conserve 30% of land and 30% of sea by 2030. And Congo, their very first marine protected area now covers 12%. We're getting their land. You know, we'd like to see that increase, but definitely promising signs. And then a nice little way to wrap up the Western Gorilla. So back in 2018, researchers surveying the gorilla's range made an uplifting announcement. Their study found 361,000 Western lowland gorillas, a third more than had previously been estimated. And then our second story on today's episode is looking at uh, these two teens' environmental project to provide shoes for homeless people. So two Bay Area teens' concerns about climate change recently led them to consider the less obvious effects of extreme weather, which resulted in dozens of homeless men, women, and children getting shoes. 
So two high schoolers organized a shoe drive late last year as a part of the Climate Leaders Fellowship, a free online forum for students interested in working together to combat the harmful effects of the Earth's changing weather patterns in their respective communities. And so one of them signed up last fall to find out what other students were doing about climate change and ended up chatting with teens in Utah, Korea and Singapore. So open to people aged uh, 14 to 18, the Climate Leaders Fellowship has teens conceive, carry out, and measure the results of their community service projects whilst sharing their ideas with peers elsewhere in the world who are doing similar work and receiving guidance from staff members at Rustic Pathways and University of Stanford or Stanford University in regular Zoom meetings. And I hadn't heard of Rustic Pathways before, but it seems like it's kind of like a little tour, like a study tour type situation. I think it's all about you go to different cultures and you learn. So, yeah, student travel, student group travel, that kind of stuff. Um, for example, my university, you could go over to like Brunei. and Not Brunei. Brunei? Could have been Brunei. And you go over there and you like learn about local conservation techniques and you like help projects. You just do like labor and whatnot as well. I think it's that type of situation. And so they started brainstorming, kicking around possibilities. Uh, you know, how about contributing to restoration efforts as soaring temperatures turn vast swaths of California's timberland into fuel for fires? Or alternatively, they could distribute cooling towels or plastic water bottles to make homeless individuals more comfortable during the summer heat. And then they reached their final decision, saying that shoes can provide not only warmth for feet when it's cold, but a barrier to the scorching hot pavement. So one of them set up a couple collection bins. So one was at uh, her campus, her school campus, and then the next one at a community center, and finally at a dojo where she has a bloody black belt in karate. Some people have it all. She's helping the homeless, giving them shoes, already doing a fellowship, working with the University of Stanford, and she already has a black belt in karate. Some people are li literally have it all. They literally have it all. And then the other person in the partnership uh, canvassed her Fremont neighborhood on foot, dropping off more than 100 flyers, asking donors to place shoes by their letterbox for pickup. And over the course of several weeks, people responded. The second girl returned to find about three dozen pairs waiting for her, while the first one said that supporters brought trash bags full of shoes to the dojo. Tennis shoes, baby shoes, high heels, and work boots. In all, the duo collected 155 pairs. So one of them handed her haul over to a county-run service that finds permanent housing and provides basic supplies for those living on the streets. And the second dropped hers off at a men's shelter in San Jose, which in turn shared some of the donations with a women's shelter nearby. This is bringing back some memories too. I don't know... Uh, if you guys experienced any of this, but I remember at my school, we would always do the old like footy boots, the old rugby boots and whatnot. They'd have like a big bin at reception and so you'd chuck them in and then they send off to like Africa. I remember, I remember one went to Kenya, one specifically, I don't know why this sticks out. One was to go to Kenya and it was like overflowing, sending boots everywhere. But you know, a nice local solution. And you know, you sh how often do you see shoes washed up on beaches don't break down too well. So this is an incredible initiative by two people bloody leaving, leading the way, already doing more for this bloody planet than I ever will. And so now over to New Zealand, looking at how microgrids could help keep the power on during extreme weather events. Tens of thousands of homes and businesses are left without power as Cyclone Gabrielle batters New Zealand's North Island. The government has declared a national state of emergency. The grid operator Transpower has declared a grid emergency following the loss of power in some regions. Advising people should be prepared to be without power for days to weeks rather than hours. 
This once again emphasizes the vulnerability of centralized power systems to increasingly severe weather events. It is crucial for communities to adopt more resilient energy solutions that can withstand such challenges in the face of a changing climate. And so this could be used in a whole wide range of different natural disasters. Like here in Australia, just thinking back a couple of years to the 2019 bushfires, which were particularly harmful, especially out here on the East Coast, the amount of stories you hear about people don't have power, can't communicate to anyone. Um, and even just like basic things like cooking, light, uh, keeping stuff cold, you know, look like medical care, that kind of stuff. Just that much harder when you don't have electricity. And I feel like you've got to be kind of careful around these types of situations after natural uh, disasters, which, you know, should they be called natural disasters anymore? That's a question. But after natural disasters... Um, with people trying to, I don't know if push agendas is the right word, but you like you raise points like this about you know climate change and like microgrids and that kind of stuff, and I feel like it can put a bad taste in people's mouths. Like you're just uh, you know drafting off the back of this massive event just to shine a light on your whatever you're fighting for, which like a lot of the time about natural disasters are pretty noble causes and things we need to act on. Um, but yeah, it can also, I feel there's definitely a fine line between like how, how, how far you can push it, how hard you can push it. And you know, when you just go to like, let's just focus on getting all sorted first. And so centralized power systems rely on large power plants and transmission grids. They are susceptible to single points of failure, making them vulnerable to extreme weather events. Whereas microgrids, on the other hand, which are small collections of power generating assets, for example, homes with solar panels, getting connected with those without solar panels, often ran by communities and peer-to-peer -peer or P2P energy systems, as they're calling it, hold promise for sustainable and resilient energy. Microgrids are self-sufficient and can operate independently or in conjunction with the larger grids. They can run on different types of renewable energy sources, including solar, wind, and hydropower. Microgrids are ideal for communities far from the main grid or in areas prone to extreme weather. P2P energy systems allow individuals and communities to generate, share, and trade energy among themselves. This creates a decentralized energy market and allows for more efficient energy use and distribution. And I've got a bit of a story about this. So I did my honors project down near, like Wilson's Prom, Venus Bay, Wonthaggy, down in southeast Victoria. And here in Australia and my supervisor he had a home down there it's like a pretty small country town and he was saying he really wants to go off-grid everything about his house you know got his own water all that kind of stuff but the only thing he's not allowed to do is apparently not allowed to do is completely go off-grid and get solar panels because in his local area there's too much solar going back into the grid and the grid can't handle it so he's stuck like he has to keep paying for electricity bill and whatnot, even though all he wants to do is be off-grid. And so I think in that situation, there's some discussions about maybe implementing a community battery at the community centre where all the solar ba uh, solar energy can be sent there instead of back to the main grid. I'm not entirely sure how it works, but I think there's, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of solutions out there. And so there's a few case studies here. We won't go too much into it. But, you know, there's microgrids all around the world from in rural India, sub-Saharan Africa, Brooklyn microgrid, which I'd never heard about. Apparently, also in Rockport, Missouri, there's a another successful one. And in uh, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And so about the Brooklyn microgrid, they say, as a solar power owner, 
BMG, Brooklyn Microgrid, wants to give your neighbors the opportunity to bid on your energy, which could be at a higher rate than you're currently getting. So, you know, that old pitch and whatnot. And they had a couple, there's a bit of information, not going into it too much, but they also had one about electric vehicle charging. And they say that when a charging station, public or private, or an electric vehicle has a surplus of energy is made available for purchase on the local network. Consumers can set budgets and be alerted to the availability by a mobile app. Now that's pretty bizarre. I'd never heard about using electric cars as energy sources, you know, like sucking the energy out of them. I don't know, again, we're not going too much into it. That's just a pretty interesting idea. Let me know down below if you've heard of anything like that before. All right, guys, before we get into this next episode, could you please head over to TikTok and Instagram at fairlylame underscore. Please give us a follow because we go over different environmental news stories over there than the ones we're looking at in today's episode. Post them about four or five days a week as a bit of a daily news show. So yeah, we'll see you over there, but back to the news. And now we have a nice little snake story. Apologies if you don't like snakes, we won't spend too long on it, but they aren't mean and they aren't trying to get you, says this incredible conservationist saving the copper belly water snake. Standing waist deep in a forest pool, Megan Seymour scans the shrubby banks with binoculars. A slight change in the color and texture spotted in the tangled button bush swamp reveals her quarry. A thick, glossy, copper belly water snake, Seymour hoists up her waders, ties back her hair, and gets stuck in to catch the snake before it disappears into the murky water, taking with it one of the last chances to save its species. So this story is from the Great Black Swamp in Northwest Ohio, and back in uh, the mid-19th century, farmers began to clear the trees and drain the swamp to access the fertile soil beneath the water. In just five decades, the Great Black Swamp was dry. Today, the Copperbelly Snake lays claim to just 50 square kilometers of remnant swamp forest in the tri-state area, slightly smaller than Manhattan Island. Though an exact number of reptiles is not known, experts estimate that fewer than 100 individuals, possibly as few as just 40, remain. So saving the copperbelly water snake is essential to the region's ecology because it's an umbrella species. The preservation and conservation of this one snake also protects habitat for dozens of other declining species that rely on the swamp forest, including the rare bobo link blackbird and the checker spot butterfly. So Seymour began searching for the copperbelly water snakes in spring 2021 and no one had seen one alive in the wild in almost three years. She spent more than 180 hours combing through the wetlands, historically inhabited by the species but none were found that was very concerning and pushed us down the road to captive propagation being the best option i've never heard of captive breeding being re being referred to as captive propagation but hey maybe they're different over in america who knows so for those who may not be uh, familiar, so captive breeding acts as an insurance policy against extinction. Encouraging endangered species to reproduce in captivity can increase population size, maintain genetic diversity, and safeguard rare species while habitat is restored for their eventual return to the wild. The Andean condor, condor, uh, red wolf, and bald eagle were saved from extinction via captive breeding. And ha I was having a bit of a read about the bald eagle, and it didn't sound like captive breeding was, you know, the be-all and end-all for the solution. It sounded like the biggest issues, they used to be hunted for their feathers and whatnot, and farmers thought they attacked sheep and all this kind of stuff. And then they were protected, and then there was some pesticide, DDT, which apparently was used for mosquitoes. That had impacts on the, um, on the eggs and hatchling survival rate and that kind of stuff, and then that was banned. And I, it, it seems like the protection, like there was captive breeding involved, um... But yeah, it sounded like, for example, 
on eagles.com. It says one method used in the recovery of the bald eagle was captive breeding of non-releasable birds or the translocation of wild eggs or egglets and the subsequent hacking of egglets into the wild. So, yeah. But, like, this program, the American Eagle Foundation uh, has only been, you know, captive breeding uh, bald eagles since 1992, uh, and they've released 180 bald eaglets. So definitely, I don't know if it's one of the main reasons that they recovered, but you know, it definitely is a factor. And then so following on, you know, she spent 180 hours not finding a single individual, but then in 2022, with the help of private landowners, Seymour found and caught six copperbelly water snakes, three males and three females. Finding six snakes was insanity. After we got the first one, I was just shaking. So they were quickly transported to Toledo Zoo, and just after four months after she was caught, one of the females gave birth to 24 babies, the first copperbelly water snakes to be born in captivity. And for our next story, apparently experts agree on the need for climate-informed wildlife crossings. So more than a dozen climate, wildlife, and road ecology experts from across the country wrote a consensus statement urging government officials at all levels to consider climate change when planning and constructing structures that help fish and wildlife wildlife cross over and under highways. So climate-informed wildlife crossings, including fish passage, would help both people and nature adapt to climate change. For instance, upsizing stream culverts under our roadways would protect infrastructure and communities during extreme flooding, while also allowing both fish and wildlife to successfully migrate. As effective as wildlife crossings can be, their sighting and design too often fail to account for climate impacts. Incorporating these considerations is increasingly important to support climate-driven wildlife movements and range shifts. Wildlife crossings save lives and money by dramatically reducing wildlife vehicle collisions. They also enhance the resilience and adaptive capacity of ecosystems by giving animals the ability to safely travel throughout their annual migration routes. Yet, climate change is causing species to shift their ranges. The statement emphasises that wildlife crossings could provide an even greater migration value if decision makers account for range shifts when planning new infrastructure. And not to go too much into it, but the type of wildlife crossing structure does very much depend on the type of species you know you want to help out right so for some species uh you might have rope bridges over highways for example where they just climb up a wooden pole it's little rope like you'd see in the army they run across the road all sweet right but obviously that's not going to help a deer other other animals like gliders have gliding poles which are literally just two poles and they glide across them others you know fish obviously need water moose and whatnot need big bloody overpasses and so going forward if you want these structures to be as beneficial as possible you know help as many species as possible you want to predict what species are likely to need these areas in the future and these structures in the future so additionally wildlife crossings have an exceptionally high return on investment yielding annual benefits of 250,000 to 443,000 per structure for example the lava boot underpass near bend oregon reduced wildlife vehicle collisions by more than 85% and Utah saw a 98.5% reduction in deer mortalities when it built two animal underpasses on a stretch of highway that blocked traditional migratory routes. Additionally, crossing projects in other states are projected to pay for themselves over a relatively short period of time. And then a nice little statement from Norris Dodd, who's a wildlife connectivity expert, saying that with the increasing frequency of extreme weather events that overwhelm and damage highway drainage culverts and small bridges, 
Oversizing such structures to better accommodate future flooding events can also present opportunities to create cost-effective wildlife passage structures that promote habitat connectivity and climate change resilience for wildlife and highway infrastructure alike. And I think the most well-known crossing structure is probably the one in Banff National Park over the Trans-Canada Highway, which I didn't even know. Apparently, it's 20 years old. Uh, but yeah, highly recommend, if you want to learn more about wildlife crossing structures, highly recommend... I think it's Vox put up a video on YouTube, a bit of a breakdown. Highly, highly recommend. And then our last story today is looking at the benefits of combining airports with solar arrays and how successful it's been over in America. So back in 2010, the Federal Aviation Administration released a study that suggested that airports are an ideal location for solar panels. And then in 2020, the University of Denver found that 20% of airports in the US had installed some kind of solar component to their power grid. Denver International Airport had become one of the largest solar projects in the US with 42,614 solar panels across 56 acres. Denver's airport was one of the first to move into the solar field. According to its website, four photovoltaic arrays with a capacity of 10 megawatts could potentially offset almost 12,000 metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions each year. And then the Indianapolis International Airport was another early adopter and apparently their solar farm is the largest solar farm on airport real estate in the world and produces 36.1 million kilowatt hours per year enough to power 3,650 homes each year and it seems like heaps of airports are doing it for example JFK by 2026 uh, JFK airport in New York is said to have more than 13,000 then where's this one LaGuardia airport it's meant to have 3,500 but then also in military bases, so in recent years, the US military has been actively installing solar at bases around the country, including a 56,000 panel array at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Comment down below if you know if airport emissions and like, you know, from electricity to power the airport and all that kind of stuff is included in the aviation industry. I feel like it would be because it's like related. Um... But then I don't know if like manufacturing of airplanes is included as well because that's like related. I don't know. But I assume this is, you know, doing your part, trying to clean it up where we can. Uh, and I wonder how this will go if we ever see electric planes. You've got your own solar arrays. Like I'm pretty sure over in New Zealand, they're looking at, Air New Zealand's looking at uh, incorporating their first solar powered, or not solar powered, electric uh, flight in the next few years, I think. So that would be very interesting to see. But, you know, the more you think about it, you realise, but wait, aren't solar panels pretty reflective? Uh, you know, is that the best thing? Do you really want reflective solar panels near airports? Um, apparently, there's some guidelines. So in, I don't know, what's this on? Skyline Solar. So say under airport regulations. So overseas, the US Federal Aviation Administration has regulations in place to prevent aircraft from being blinded by reflections from solar panels. These regulations require that solar farms be located at least five miles from an airport and that they use special low glare uh, photovoltaic cells. But then they also went on to say, you know, solar panel glare doesn't have to be a nuisance. By choosing high quality PV cells, photovoltaic cells, and installing them on adjustable mounts, you can minimize reflection and ensure that your solar panels aren't creating a nuisance for your neighbors or community members or pilots flying planes over your cities. And so I'm assuming a lot of these installations aren't all that close to the airport, like the airport might own, you know, a nearby paddock or whatnot, because at least here in Australia, a lot of airports are not in the country, but they're near farmland, right? So maybe they just buy a couple paddocks 
you know, a couple acres over, whatever, and have a solar farm there. So it's not actually in the airport, but it's owned by the airport. I don't know. Let me know what you guys reckon down below. But yeah, this has been episode 25 of the Fairly Lame Podcast. As always, my name is Dom. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. And yeah, have an incredible day. We'll see you next week.